Welcome back to another episode of the Ninja Nerd Podcast. We hope you guys are having a great day. Today we're talking about anti-anginal medications. Like always, go on ninjanerd.org. Please get a membership, check out our illustrations, our notes, and make sure you follow along with us. It's going to be a good one today. A lot of information, but we'll make sure that it's streamlined and efficient and get you guys on your way. Yeah, so I think angin is a pretty cool topic, Rob. I'm excited to talk about it. Good old chest pain. Definitely need to know this stuff, especially when patients come into the you know, the hospital. They come into your uh, primary care clinic and they're complaining of chest pain. It's really, really important. Coronary artery disease is a very common disease. So definitely important to be able to know how to identify it and how to treat it. Yeah, couldn't couldn't agree more. It's going to be uh Walking through your door and uh, you better know how to treat it, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So, Zach, I want to help our listeners understand anti-angels, but I think in order to do that, we have to have a clear understanding of the types of angina. Can you explain the different types of angina in a simple way for us to understand? Yeah, absolutely. So I think one of the big things with angina is, you know, when you talk about these, there's one basic pathophysiological principle behind this. And that's really, there is a reduced oxygen supply. So there's a plaque within the coronary vessel that's reducing the perfusion to the myocardium. And then on the other end of that, there's an increase in oxygen demand. In other words, the heart is working hard. They're having a fast heart rate. They're having an increased contractility, an increased afterload, an increased preload, something of that nature that's having their heart work harder increasing the demand. And whenever you have a patient with a low O2 supply and an increase in oxygen demand, boom, you have a recipe for angina. And that's the basic concept there. That's it, huh? Yeah, I know. It's 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 a simple kind of concept. I think it's it's one of the rare situations where we can kind of keep it pretty simple, right? I don't know, man. That that I'll I'll take that because normally we, you know, it's a it's an absolute disaster <laughs> when you talk about pathophys. <laughs> yeah, it really. Can I mean, be. we have topics with like sixteen million arrows, <laughs> organs, and diagrams all over the place. <laughs> I'll take this one every day. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> this one is very simple. High demand, you're working hard, you're eating the O2. Low supply, you ain't getting fed by the O2. So whenever you have that mismatch, that's the basic concept. I don't know about all of you guys, but we, we got Starbucks today. And uh, Zach told me to try this this delicious drink. It's not that great. <laughs> it's really good. It's not all that great. What's it called again? It's called the Sweet Cream Vanilla Cold Brew. And I think it's good. Shout out to the Sweet Cream Cold Brew, my yeah, friends. We're not sponsored at all by Starbucks, by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that'd be uh, pretty sick. Though. It would be That's cool, a, but yeah. I don't know. I'm not a fan of this drink. <laughs> I like it. I like it. All right. And anyway, let me let me get back on track here. Let me get back on topic. Yeah, yeah. So I think that that's the basic pathophysiological principle behind the types of angina. Now, when we talk about the different types of angina, there there really is like three categories. So there's stable angina. So there's a stable plaque within the coronary vessel that's reducing the O2 supply. And really, the only time where the increase in demand comes is whenever a patient is exerting themselves. So they're outside, they're working out, they're walking up a hill, they're walking upstairs, they're under emotional stress, something of that nature. And then the chest pain comes about because of the increased demand. Another one is called Prinz Metals Angina. It's also called Variant Angina, Vasospastic Angina. There's various names for it. Um, but this one is usually due to spontaneous coronary artery vasospasm. So they just, they just contract like a son of a gun, the coronary vessels. And what it does is it reduces the O2 supply. In these patients, they can have this episodic angina that can occur typically at rest. And it usually happens either at night or it can happen early in the morning. Usually it's in younger females who smoke, who do cocaine, have history of migraines, et cetera, or on trip hands, things of that nature. The last category of angina is the acute coronary syndrome. So this is a patient who maybe has 
let's say stable angina, they have a stable plaque, but the plaque ruptures. And when the plaque ruptures, you can form a clot on top of that plaque. And it can lead to a subtotal occlusion where it's not completely occluded, but it's decently occluded. And there's really, really little O2 supply to the myocardium. So there's two types for this one. One is unstable angina. And we can look at that one. And then the other one is NSTEMI, so non-ST segment elevation MI. These are two that can actually occur where when you check an EKG on these patients, they both can have ST or T wave changes, particularly like maybe T wave inversions, ST depressions. But one of the big differences is unstable angina has no troponin leaks, whereas NSTEMIs do have troponin leaks. So that's a, that's a key thing. The other type of acute coronary syndrome is whenever you rupture that stable plaque, form a clot on top of the stable plaque, and then 100% occlusion occurs in the coronary vessel, you get no blood flow to the myocardium. And so because of that, you have so little O2 supply that in all three of these scenarios, unstable angina, NSTEMI, or STEMI, which is classified by ST segment elevations and troponin leaks. These all can have chest pain or angina that occur at rest because there is so little O2 supply. Even if you don't have an increase in demand, it's enough to cause significant angina and better guess what you go ahead and have these patients exert themselves for some particular reason. They will have a massive significant increase in O2 demand and a very terrible anginal chest pain. So pretty important concept to remember. So I think that gives, I think the pathophysiological principle, reduced O2 supply, increased demand in severe states of ACS. You may have really, really low O2 supply. And then the three types so stable angina, Prinz metals, and then acute coronary syndrome, Rob. Alrighty, Awesome. So let's move on to the next part now of this episode to really try and discuss the four types of anti-anginal medications. So the four categories we have to first talk about are, are beta blockers or calcium channel blockers, nitrates, and then renolazine. I hope I said that right. <laughs> yeah, renolazine. Absolutely. All righty. Good, good. Uh, so let's go ahead now and talk about their one mechanism of action the names of some of these drugs as examples, and then finally, some of the adverse drug reactions that we have to be on the lookout for. Absolutely. So I think one of the big ones to first start off with is beta blockers, very commonly used as an anti-anginal medication. So the basic concept of how they work is they block the beta-1 receptors in the heart. And so because of that, if you block the beta-1 receptors in the nodal cells, you'll drop the heart rate. And if you drop the, um, if you block the beta one receptors on the myocardium, the contractile cells, you'll reduce the contractility. The combination of reducing a patient's heart rate and their contractility. So negative chronotropic and negative inotropic action comparatively and respectively will actually decrease the cardiac output. So that means that you're decreasing the amount of blood that you have to pump out of the heart every minute. If you do that, if you decrease the amount of heart, uh, the amount of work that the heart is having to do to pump out all this volume of blood, you decrease its oxygen consumption. It's not having to use as much oxygen to pump all this volume of blood out. And so because of that, that decreases the oxygen demand. So I think that's the big, big concept to be able to remember. Now, there's a bunch of different agents within these, and some of the names are pretty straightforward for these ones. Now, the beta blockers, they are going to end in olol, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Lol. The <laughs> Yeah, and so the common agents in this situation is things like metoprolol, atenolol, bisoprolol. You can potentially even consider propanolol 
I would just be careful because remember, propranolol is a beta 1 and beta 2 blocker. So because you'll get the beta 1 blockade, that's beneficial in this situation. But you may get beta 2 blockade, which may give some kind of adverse drug reactions. And that kind of leads us into the next concept here. What are some of the adverse reactions? Well, with beta 1 blockade, you can obviously drop the patient's heart rate. So watch out for bradycardia, especially if they have an AV block or they're already bradycardic. It can cause hypotension, but particularly more if a patient already has pre-existing heart failure where the reduced ejection fraction, or they're in a decompensated heart failure, I would really try to be very cautious and maybe even avoid these medications in those states. And then again, bronchospasm, more particularly with propanolol than you're going to see with the other agents because it has that beta-2 blockade. So it's going to block the bronchodilation effect. The other thing is really be careful in this with patients with diabetes. And the reason why is it can actually kind of blunt the sympathetic reflex from hypoglycemia. And so you may not become aware whenever your blood sugar is actually low. So hypoglycemia unawareness may be a potential uh, effect there. All right, so that covers beta blockers. The next category that Rob outlined for us is calcium channel blockers. So this is going to be two groups. One is your non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers, and the other one is the dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers. For non-dihydropyridine, how do these work? Just like beta blockers. They block the calcium channels in the nodal cells, and they block the calcium channels in the contractile cells. That reduces heart rate, reduces contractility, decreases the cardiac output. Your heart's not having to pump as much volume of blood out. That's decreased the amount of work it's having to do that's decreasing its oxygen consumption and decreasing the demand. But here's another cool concept here. With non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers, they have a very mild to moderate vasodilatory effect. And so because of that, they can actually cause systemic arterial vasodilation, very minor, minor. but if it does uh, kind of dilate your arteries, it'll actually reduce your systemic vascular resistance. And that reduces afterload, and that reduces the amount of work that the left ventricle has to work against to push blood out of the heart. That's decreasing the cardiac work, the strain, and it's decreasing oxygen consumption, and it's decreasing the oxygen demand. The other benefit of non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers is they have a little bit of coronary artery vasodilation, and so that may help to be able to improve coronary perfusion. Here's the key thing, though. With non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers, they've been shown to be way more stable and beneficial in patients with Prinz metals angina as compared to the classic ischemic heart disease that you see in stable, unstable angina, NSTEMI, etc. So I would remember that. The two agents that are utilized in this category to reduce heart rate, contractility, systemic vascular resistance, and provide coronary artery vasodilation is verapamil and diltiazem. But I would actually prefer verapamil because it's going to have a little bit more vasodilatory effect in comparison to diltiazem. The things that I would be careful for with these drugs is that, again, just like beta blockers, they can drop your heart rate. So watch out for bradycardia. If a patient has a low cardiac output, so they have a HEFREF or they have a decompensated heart failure, do not give this medication. You can put them in a cardiogenic shock and kill them. And so I'd be careful with that. These drugs are decently pretty beneficial, though, but again, I would prefer to utilize these more as a second-line agent, and if I have a preference, it's going to have more benefit in the patients with Prinz metals or vasospastic angina. That leads us to the other, other category, the dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers. So this is the ones they have no effect on the heart. All they do is they dilate the arteries. So they dilate systemic arteries, reducing systemic vascular resistance, reducing afterload, reducing the left ventricular cardiac 
acidic output, reducing the amount of work that the left ventricle has to do. That reduces its oxygen consumption and reduces demand. It also gives a little bit of coronary artery vasodilation, which helps to improve coronary perfusion. Now, these drugs are, again, more preferred in patients with Prinz metals or vasospastic angina. That is the big thing. Calcium channel blockers, more preferred for vasospastic angina, but you can use it in any type of angina, whether that be stable angina, unstable angina, any of those. But again, it's preferred in the Prinz metals of type. Now, two of these drugs that are the dihydropyridine are amlodipine and nifedipine, but nifedipine is actually preferred because it has more of a longer acting formulation or an extended release, which may be a little bit more safe for these patients. I think the re, uh, re, re, you know, reactions that you want to watch out for for these patients is reflex tachycardia because whenever you drop the systemic vascular resistance, what happens is that actually kind of causes the activation of baroreceptors and it stimulates the sympathetic nervous system to try to increase heart rate to try to increase blood pressure. So you can see a reflex tachycardia. The other thing is it vasodilates some of the cerebral vessels. So it may cause a little bit of a headache. And I would also be very careful. There has been some evidence. <laughs> this is why it's more preferred for the Prinz metals in comparison to the ischemic heart disease type or the patients with true plaques, um, like especially unstable and STEMI, things of that nature. It, I would really be careful with amlodipine. If I'm going to use any of them, use nifedipine. And the reason why is there's been evidence that short acting agents like amlodipine may have an increased mortality risk if a patient had an MI. So just after they have an MI, if you put them on amlodipine, you could actually potentially increase their mortality. So thus why these are more preferred in Prinz metals or vasospastic in comparison to your classic like angina due to ischemic heart disease. Okay, that leads us into the third category, which is our nitrates. So nitrates are really cool drugs, very commonly utilized, often tend to be first line in acute anginal attacks. Um, but what they do is they increase nitric oxide. So these drugs have nitric oxide in their structure. It relieves the nitric oxide into the actual smooth muscle cell and your arteries and your veins. And what happens is when it gets into these smooth muscle cells in the arteries and the veins, the nitric oxide activates something called guanylocyclase, which is an enzyme that converts GTP into cyclic GMP. Then cyclic GMP activates another enzyme called protein kinase G. Protein kinase G then inhibits specific enzymes that are involved in the activation activation of the myofilaments. And what that does is that leads to the relaxation of the smooth muscle. And then because of that, the veins dilate and the arteries dilate. Now, why is that beneficial? Well, the venodilation, if you dilate big veins, you're going to reduce the preload to the heart. That reduces the stroke volume. That reduces the cardiac output. That reduces the amount of work that the heart has to do to push this large volume out. That reduces its work, its consumption of oxygen, and then reduces its demand. That's why it's beneficial. Here's the other cool thing. We also find that nitrates may provide a little bit of coronary artery vasodilation, just like the calcium channel blockers. So that may help to be able to improve some coronary perfusion as well. Now, the agent in this class is short-acting and long-acting. So the short-acting ones are the good for acute anginal attacks. So this is going to be like nitroglycerin. And really, nitroglycerin is really, really important to give during these acute anginal attacks. And it can be given as sublingual or like a trans-dermal like, paste, which is actually kind of really cool in this situation. They actually put a, they, they put paste on you. Like they, <laughs> they slather some paste on yeah, you. Yeah, exactly. They can take some paste and put it on the patient's like arm and put like usually like a patch or kind 
kind of thing. But nitroglycerin has a massive first pass metabolism. So if you give it orally, it's a really, really big problem. Like so much of it gets chewed up, which is pretty crazy. I think I remember you saying that before. It's like 90% of that will get chewed up by the liver. Yeah, exactly. So you get very, pretty much like 10% of the drug if you take it orally in the circulation. So that's very little. Whew, no free lunch for nitro. Huh? <laughs> exactly. So that's why it's beneficial to give it sublingual or to give it transdermal because you get more absorption of the drug and therefore you get more of the coronary dilation and the venodilation effect, which is pretty cool. The next category are the long acting. So you have the short acting, which is nitro, more for the beneficial short acting kind of acute anginal attacks. The long acting is going to be isosorbide dinitrate, which is a pretty decent kind of like duration. And then isosorbide mononitrate, which has an even longer duration of effect. So those would be drugs to add on. Usually after a patient's been stabilized with, you know, we'll talk about this in a little bit. We do the short acting nitro and then after that we add a beta blocker and then we can go on to long acting nitro. So we'll talk about it in a second. But Adverse drug reactions to watch out for with nitros is that they can cause orthostasis. So they can dilate your veins, reduce your preload, and that can reduce your stroke volume, cardiac output, and blood pressure, especially during postural changes. So if a patient goes from a seated position to a standing, they go from supine to seated, those shifts reduce venous return. Or generally, you're supposed to have an improvement in venous return during those changes. What happens, though, is if you have this patient stand up and you're dilating their veins, they're going to have a super significant drop in their venous return. They're going to drop their blood pressure and become very, very dizzy or syncopal. So watch out for orthostatic hypotension. The other thing is just like um, dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers, they give a little bit of vasodilatory effect. So watch out for headaches for the cerebral blood vessels. Here's the other big thing. Hypotension, my friends. You have to watch out for this. If a patient is taking Viagra for the then you gotta, you gotta be careful because taking this with uh, Tadalafil or Sildenafil, this can really drop the patient's venous return and that can cause significant hypotension. So watch out for that. Instead of having a good time, they're going to be on the ground. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, but they'll be holding themselves up on the ground. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> that's, that's one thing to watch out for. The other thing is um, don't give this to a patient who has a right ventricular MI. The reason why is if a patient has a right ventricular MI, it's a problem. They're, they're already having a difficult time getting blood out of their right heart. And so if they can't get blood out of their right heart, they're not going to give blood to the left heart. So the left heart venous return drops. Then you give them a nitro, you drop their venous return even more. The right ventricle gets no love, gets no blood return. And because of that, it gives almost no blood or very little blood to the left heart. And then you're going to drop your cardiac output from the left heart, drop your blood pressure and tank them. So be careful with that. The last thing I would also mention with nitrates, is there's a tolerance factor. So sometimes the patients are using nitrates pretty, pretty frequently um, during these acute anginal attacks. You can have this kind of like time period where the smooth muscle cells like desensitize themselves to the nitrates where they stop really responding very well. And it's important to be able to think about this. If a patient has kind of like that classic stable angina or unstable angina, it may be beneficial for these patients to have at least a 10 or 12 hour nitrate free period to really restore their sensitivity to the nitrates on those smooth muscle cells. And really, it's important to think about this. If a patient has like a stable or unstable angina, usually the time where their oxygen demand is the lowest is when they're sleeping. So really kind of use that time while the patient's sleeping to not use those nitrates for anywhere from 10 to 12 hours. It might be a little bit more complicated for the Prinz metals because those can occur at nighttime and in the early morning. So sometimes so they say for some patients, maybe it's good to have the, like the later afternoon where you kind of keep that nitrate free period. But 
Either way, try to have that to really reduce the sensitivity and the tolerance um, that you see with this drug. All right, the last category here, so we cover beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, nitrates. The last one is renolazine. So <laughs> I can't honestly say I've ever seen this drug utilized, Rob, but the whole concept behind this drug is that it's really the last line. So someone's like having angina and they're not getting any better. What these drug, what this drug actually does is it blocks the the, the, the late phase of the sodium channels. So sodium doesn't come into the cardiac myocytes. If it doesn't come into the cardiac myocytes, what happens is that leads to less intracellular sodium inside of the actual myocytes. That leads to less sodium being exchanged for calcium. So less sodium goes out of the cell and then less calcium comes into the myocardiocyte. Okay. The cardiac, uh, cardiac, uh, cardiac myocyte. If less calcium comes into the actual cardiac myocyte, that means that the myocardium has less calcium to induce contraction of the myofilaments. So that means that the, the actual myocardium is not going to contract as well. It's going to reduce contractility. That'll help to reduce oxygen demand. But here's the other thing. It really reduces contractility, especially during the diastolic phase, the phase when the heart's supposed to be relaxing. Why is that important? If a patient has angina and their heart is actually not relaxing very well, especially during, you know, the diastolic process, there's a lot of tension on the diastolic, uh, there's a lot of tension on the actual um, ventricular wall during diastole. And what that does is imagine having a lot of tension on the actual wall of the ventricle, squeezing and compressing on the coronary vessels running through the myocardium. And if it compresses them, it reduces the coronary perfusion that leads to less oxygen supply to the myocardium. If you reduce the contractility of the myocardium during diastole, you decrease the wall tension, you decrease the compression of those coronary arteries, and then you improve the coronary artery blood flow and the oxygen supply to the myocardium. So you get a double whammy effect. Do you reduce contractility? That reduces demand. And you relieve the diastolic wall tension, which decreases the compression of the microvasculature of the coronary circulation and again, reduces oxygen supply. So that's a pretty cool, interesting concept there. All right, last but not least is the adverse drug reactions to watch out for with this drug. It has a, a lot, and I mean a lot of cytochrome P450 metabolism, pretty extensive. So be careful with this drug, especially with like CYP450 inducers. It can really kind of like change the, the efficacy of this drug and decrease the efficacy of this drug. So really be careful of that. Watch out for a lot of drug interactions, especially not only that, but it also can cause QT prolongation. It's an antiarrhythmic. So since it's a sodium channel blocker, it has the ability to prolong the QT interval. So again, watch out for a lot of drug interactions and QT prolongation. Maybe careful to avoid that drug in this situation. Okay, so we've got down the types of angina. We've got down the four categories of antianginals. We're going to keep moving along here. Last but not least, let's finish up this episode giving the listeners a practical strategy of how to choose the right agent for that patient with just nasty, just unrelenting chest pain. So, Zach, how would you approach a patient who walks into the Ninja Nerd Clinic with chest pain after doing some yard work, maybe planting a whole bunch of trees? <laughs> yeah. So they've been doing some work, right? They have, let's say, some type of like coronary artery disease. So they got some plaques in their vessel wall. So they already have a reduced supply. They start working hard, right, exerting themselves, putting these trees in the ground. Because of that, they're going to increase their demand, right? So... In that situation, if the patient comes in and they're having an acute anginal attack, the first drug that you want to give to this patient is sublingual nitroglycerin or transdermal, so nitro paste or ointment. After you do that, that's going to work to venodilate, and it's also going to work to be able to, again, coronary vasodilate. So that'll give you some benefit there. So that's going to be your nitroglycerin. 
The next thing is after I do that, I'm going to add on a beta blocker. Okay. Because that's going to re- reduce heart rate, reduce contractility, reduce oxygen consumption, reduce demand. So that's a great situation to start off with. So anginal chest pain acutely, sublingual nitro or transdermal nitro, and then add on a beta blocker. After you add on the beta blocker like metoprolol, atenolol, basoprolol, something of that nature, the next thing that's important to remember is if they are still having anginal chest pain and they're still having inadequate relief after you've properly titrated these drugs, then I would add on another agent. The next agent to add on here is either a calcium channel blocker like a non-dihydropyridine or a dihydropyridine or a long-acting nitrate. So you can do a calcium channel blocker or a long-acting nitrate like isosorbide dinitrate or isosorbide mononitrate. So it's one of those two. So it would look like this. Patient comes in, here, sublingual nitroglycerin or transdermal nitroglycerin, and here, metoprolol. They're still not getting better. They're still having worsening anginal symptoms. Okay, I'm going to give you verapamil or I'm going to give you nifedipine. Those are the two options for the calcium channel blockers. Or instead of me giving you any calcium channel blocker, I'll give you isosorbide dinitrate or isosorbide mononitrate. Right so, there, Zach. When you're choosing the calcium channel blocker, how do you choose whether it's dihydropyridine or non-dihydropyridine? That's a good question. So I think it's also looking at the patient's underlying history. So if a patient has like heart failure or heart failure with a reduced ejection fraction, they have some type of like AV node block or bradycardia, something of that nature. I would probably kind of avoid the non-dihydropyridine types because that can drop your heart rate, drop your contractility. So I'd be careful in utilizing those drugs is compared to that. If a patient has like underlying hypertension, um, African-American, something of that nature, they may find more of a benefit um, from amlodipine. They may find more of a benefit from particularly nifedipine. I would just be very careful again with the um, amlodipine because of the increased mortality. So I'd prefer nifedipine in those situations. But I think it's just looking at their underlying history and also remembering that these drugs are way more beneficial in patients who have Prince metals angina, not as good as in patients who have true, like, you know, angina due to like a plaque. So just consider that you can still use them, but they're not as good. But that's a great question. I would yeah. kind of look at the under, un- underlying history for these great, patients. Great. So after I add on a calcium channel blocker or a long acting nitrate, if the patient is still refractory, so they're still having anginal chest pain, the last line drug is renolazine. And I would add that one on as well. So it could pretty much be sublingual nitro for acute anginal attacks, plus a beta blocker chronically. If they're still inadequate, calcium channel blocker or long acting nitrate. If they're still chronic, renolazine. So these patients could be upwards of three particular drugs um, that they could be on plus sublingual nitrate acutely whenever they need it. I think it's an awesome scenario when you go over different types of situations where they have angina plus a comorbidity. So I would love to hear some situations where you might have a patient with a comorbidity. What do you do then? How do you prescribe the medications then? Yeah. And I think that's also adding to that question that you said, which, which one, when would I pick like maybe a calcium channel blocker over a beta blocker? Or when would I pick a calcium channel blocker over a long acting nitrate, et cetera. And so I think that's an important thing to remember. So if a patient just had an MI, remember I told you probably best to stay away from calcium channel blockers in general. So it's probably better to just stick with your beta blockers or your nitrates. If a patient has asthma or COPD, remember, stay away from the beta blockers maybe. Why? Because if you give a beta blocker, yes, metoprolol, atenolol, basoprolol, they don't really have as much of the beta 2 effect, but they do have a little beta 2. And so they can cause a little bit of bronchospasm. So it's probably best to stay away from a beta blocker if they have rip roaring asthma or COPD. And so stick with your calcium channel blockers or your nitrates. 
If a patient has hypertension, nitrates are not really good at hypertension. It's really your calcium channel blockers and your beta blockers that actually will have more of a profound effect on patients who have hypertension. Because remember, nitro is primarily a venodilator. It's not really an arterial dilator except at high, high doses. So because of that, I'd say hypertension, calcium channel blocker, beta blocker. The next thing is diabetes. Probably stay away from beta blockers because they blunt the hypoglycemia sympathetic reflex. So if a patient has hypoglycemia unawareness, you can see that with beta blockers may not want to give that in that situation and preferably give it in patients who have, you know, the calcium channel blockers or nitrates instead. The last one, chronic kidney disease. Really, I think any of these three drugs can be given. You can give a beta blocker, you can give a calcium channel blocker, you can give a nitrate. The studies have just shown that beta blockers are actually less effective in CKD. But again, we already know the best agents to give in CKD are going to be ACE inhibitors and ARBs. But if you don't have a choice, again, one of these drugs may be an option there. All right. Awesome. Sub 30 minute podcast episode. That was pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah, it was actually a pretty good. One. I actually like this one. I think it's a pretty common disease that you guys will come across. So I think it's important to be able to know this, how to be able to identify the different types of angina, how to be able to treat them, know the categories, know the names, know the indications. And uh, hopefully you guys have a better strategy on all that. But engineers, thank you guys so much for sticking around for the podcast. Uh, love you. Thank you. And uh, as always, until next time. 